keep my phone, I'm not going to answer it, I'm just for the time. Because <laughs> I thought it would be good to speak for about 45 minutes, wherever we get to in the notes, doesn't matter, because I'd rather have a kind of conversation afterwards and make time for that. So, um, yeah, so so the talk is kind of billed as the unconscious from Freud to Lacan. But I really hope we get to Lacan, because <laughs> there's a lot to say about Freud. And, um, yeah, but... I don't want to be pluggy and cheesy, but there is a book called Introductory Lectures on Lacan, which I think might even be an easier shot. But so the notes that I'm working from are kind of the basic notes for the essay that's in that book. And so that's obviously really well-structured and it's much better than <laughs> kind of free speech in a way. But, um, yeah, so that's there. So if we don't get the whole way, I apologise, but the, the whole thing is elsewhere. Um, so I wanted to talk about the concept as Freud elaborated it, and then what happened to it in the wake of Freud. And then finally, how, how Lacan, with his return to Freud, tried to bring back what was so particular and so radical about the Freudian concept, and which seemed to him to be being obliterated by his later reworkings of the theory. But I suppose I'll, I'll mainly talk about Freud. And also the, the difficulties of working with the concept clinically and the fact that these days um, people are quite forewarned against the unconscious and in treatment that can be a hindrance rather than a help. Um, so, you know, for instance, if you know what a Freudian slip is and then you make one, it can almost seem to none as, oh, yeah, that's a Freudian slip. <laughs> you know, and you don't dare to interpret it if someone treats it like that or it sort of can wrong foot you. Um, so the knowledge of psychoanalysis is another defence against psychoanalysis very often in treatment. Um, so even people who go to see a shrink these days might say that they don't believe in the unconscious. Um, and there's the, the idea around that Freud's so kind of outdated and disproven that you know psychoanalysis surely can't be about all of that. And you can't seriously think that, say, they might have repressed sexual impulses towards certain members of their family, for instance. So <laughs> familiarity with, with the ideas and all the debate that sprung up around them, plus probably the, the current mania for encouraging people... Oh, really? Should I move the mic closer? funny, I can hear myself really loudly. <laughs> Is that better? Okay, I can go really close to it, but that might be horrible. Um, I can see it moving slightly, which is <laughs> what would Freud say? Um, <laughs> But, um, and there's also this, this current kind of mania for encouraging people to believe that they can control everything in their own lives, which, which means that people are probably better defended against the concept of the Freudian unconscious than they were, say, a hundred years ago. You can see it coming a mile off and can draw on a kind of battalion of reasons not to take it seriously. But in spite of all that, there are still um, symptoms that bring people to therapy. And sometimes there, there might be the hope that there'll be a number of kind of nice, um, acceptable reasons why you're suffering, usually quite externalised, you know, because so-and-so was horrible or it's not fair or whatever it is, and that therapy will help you deal with that. And, and there are plenty of therapies that will, you know, help you with all that stuff or try to. But if you choose psychoanalysis, that implies that the unconscious is going to be taken seriously which is going to mean there's a very high chance that you might be led to think about things that you'd rather not think about at all, um, as in kind of really rather not think about, which is obviously a very strange experience to put yourself through voluntarily. So I'll go into the mechanics of the unconscious as described by Freud, because it all seems, even though it's a bit, it's a bit knotty and technical, and I hope it's not boring, but it seems to go wrong when the unconscious is seen as something a bit blurry, a bit sort of, way surrealism, and, and not <laughs> something quite precise. So, um... Just to do a bit 
um, to speak a bit about the background, I didn't, in, in this um, essay in the book, there's all the stuff, you know, the sort of prehistory of the unconscious and um, what's he called, Hippolyte Bernheim and Pierre Genet and all these people who are working on the same idea at the same time and Schalke, etc., and developing it. But um, I won't speak about that now. But also, you know, alongside that, sort of inside psychiatry, um, outside the, the medical world, there's a perfectly common idea that, that people might do or say things without knowing why. Um, and they might think about things they think they don't want to think about. They might keep getting into, into situations that make them suffer or do self-destructive things. So how do you think about all of that? Um, and there are all these, you know, fate pers- versus personal responsibility or the question of whether there's an external force like God or whatever that throws things in your way. Um, maybe makes you miserable in order to teach you something and questions about whether you're master of your own destiny, whether you can control your actions and feelings all these debates about um, passion versus reason the whole of kind of enlightenment and post-enlightenment philosophy and you know, novelists like Jane Austen etc so it's kind of all, all the questions <laughs> are there all over the place and obviously not just um, inside the medical profession in the late 19th century um, and also the question is about sort of is it better to live according to your feelings even if you don't know why you have those feelings um, and these endless essays and novels and poems and paintings and films and everything trying to say something about whether people are rational controlled beings or all kind of uncontrollable balls of sentiment so, so these huge questions about who's in charge and whether individuals can be in charge of themselves or not um, So, by the late 1890s, Freud has both the technique of psychoanalysis um, and also a pretty good early sketch of the theory, but not until 1900, when he publishes the interpretation of dreams, does he give a kind of schematic account of the relations between the conscious, pre-conscious and unconscious symptoms. So he says that unconscious ideas have to attach themselves somehow to pre-conscious ideas in order to avoid repression, and that this is what leads to the sorts of weirdness that you see in dreams. So in a sense, that whole book is about the unconscious, um, and, and also its relation to consciousness, how, how ideas get between the two. But, but the idea of the unconscious doesn't get a mention, I don't think, until a couple of hundred pages in, and it's not really towards the end that he tries to say something about the various agencies of the mind and the dynamics that work between them. So I'll try to talk about all of that more precisely in a minute. But anyway, from, from there, from 1900, you, in Freud's work, you get to see that he does all this kind of amazing stuff that's been made possible by this new way of thinking about the unconscious or about the things in our minds that we aren't consciously aware of. So all those books like this, like Psychopathology of Everyday Life and Jokes and Relation to the Unconscious, all these kind of incredible case histories. So in that time, Freud becomes incredibly famous and he goes to America with Carl Jung, etc., etc., um, and, and gets this huge collection of um, passionate followers and fellow researchers. But maybe because the unconscious is really such a strange and difficult idea, the more people started to know about it, the more liable they were to misunderstand it. And I was just talking to Ivan about this um, fantastic film, A Dangerous Method, the David Cronenberg film. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen it, but it's really amazing, because all, all those things, like I was thinking about, because um, it's usually really horrible to see your um, profession portrayed in film or on TV or in fiction and there are lots of, I think there are lots of news stories about um, Broadchurch and stuff how much lawyers hate Broadchurch and, and how much advertisers hate Mad Men <laughs> but A Dangerous Method as far as I can tell so far shrinks really like it, it's really good and, and it's all about that relationship with Freud and Jung and it's, most of the text most of the script seems to be lifted from letters and from essays and it's, it's the real words that people said which in a way makes it seem quite clunky and artificial in the film it's quite the David Cronenberg thing I suppose it's quite an, an odd film it's not completely naturalistic although it's beautifully um, you know, all the clothes and the way it looks is amazing but, but the people are saying the real stuff to each other and sometimes it's so hardcore it's like <laughs> he just said that to him, oh my god it's amazing, but anyway, so, so that's a good thing to see if you can see it, I think but um, and within psychoanalysis there's this terrible rift with Carl Jung 
who've been so important at the beginning in terms of giving support to Freud's ideas. But then he goes on to develop this notion of the unconscious that shows that he really didn't take what Freud had been saying at all seriously for, for the last decade. Um, actually, yeah, that's sort of what the film's about. So in, in 1912, Jung uh, published The Psychology of the Unconscious, um, and this difference comes out between him and Freud concerning the nature of the libido. So Freud's theory of the drives and repression um, is already, it's kind of there, leading to the organisation of psychic functions into conscious and unconscious processes. But then Jung's idea of the libido is as a kind of psychic energy that can be put to use to make you a kind of creative, healthy individual. So he has the idea of the unconscious as a sort of wholesome, natural force that you can tap into in order to live in greater harmony with the world and with each other. Um, an idea which seems to have been really disgusting to Freud, who, who really wanted to try to say something quite precise about the unconscious, and he didn't want people with these sort of woolly spiritual ideas to get in his way. So totally seems to have freaked him out to the point where he literally fall over in Jung's presence. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's like Jung's trying to be nice, so that's not good. Um, <laughs> so um, then, then later on there's this 1915 essay on the unconscious Freud essay, which is one of the metapsychological papers um, and in that paper this, this idea of the unconscious is kind of stripped of its imaginary dimensions sorry I've been looking in jargon but, um, but in that essay he tries to talk about it purely in terms of dynamics, topography and economics so in other words, there, there are no sort of exciting vignettes, examples, um, you know, funny stories, no dreams, no details of daily life, just a really stark description of the workings of the three systems, the unconscious, the preconscious, and the conscious. So it's just stripped back to the bare bones. And it seems that he's not only correcting potential misunderstandings, but also really arguing a case for the unconscious. Um, and so, so there you can really see the problem of trying to speak scientifically about something that can't be measured or proven. But um, he says it's nonetheless necessary. Um, so there's evidence of this thing in slips and dreams, but also in symptoms. And psychoanalytic symptoms are a place where people find themselves doing things that they can't possibly understand or find any reason for. So Freud says that it really is observably the case that we're capable of psychical activity of which we know nothing, and kind of no amount of angry philosophers or doctors can, can say otherwise. <laughs> that's a fact. But So how we think about that is something else, but um, you can't say that's not true. So you have these three systems, the unconscious, the preconscious, and conscious, with the possibility of transfer of material between those, those three things. So the conscious is, you know, all the things that we know that we know. The preconscious is the things we might know or think about at some point. We just don't happen to be thinking about them right now. But if we wanted to think about them, um, then there'd be no obstacle to them entering into consciousness. Then the unconscious, which is ideas that are unacceptable to the ego and that need to be kept out of consciousness, you know, however you think you could do it. So for, a way, for an idea to make its way from the unconscious into consciousness, it needs to pass through the preconscious system. And the idea is that this system would spot it as a kind of non-starter, bad news, horrible thing, and, and keep it back, or do something with it. So in other words, it would be repressed. So the preconscious can hold ideas back without the conscious mind being made aware of it. And, and so there are unconscious parts of the ego. So it isn't that the ego is analogous with consciousness, which is what, I don't know, it might sometimes appear to be. Um, so how are we supposed to think about those agencies? Is, is it a kind of poetic idea? Do they literally inhabit different areas of the brain? So all that stuff's totally unanswerable for Freud, although he didn't deny any. I think he seemed to quite hope that it, might become possible later to have something to say about that. So, yeah, lots of people are very hard at work on that right now. Um, but he just says at the time that you can see these functions at work in people, and if science wants to come along later and have something to say about it, that's great. 
But in the meantime, the things to understand as much as possible about the dynamics of the mind. Um, and the methods of psychoanalysis, i.e. free association, to him provided a perfectly workable tool for doing that. Um, and also, before that, there's also um, some kind of evidence already that um, provided by hypnotic experiments showing that people could perfectly well be made to perform certain actions, for instance, without consciously knowing why they're doing them. So what would characterise an unconscious idea? Um, in order to answer that, you kind of have to untangle the distinction between an instinctual impulse and an unconscious idea. Um, and that seems to be kind of a common misconception that the unconscious is a place where all the drives are kind of packed off in this swirling state, ready to burst into action. But, but Freud says that you can't have a notion of the drive in a kind of freeform state. It has to attach itself to an idea, or we, we wouldn't know anything about it. So, so it's sort of the drive has to, whatever, if it's a sexual drive, you have to fancy someone, otherwise you wouldn't know <laughs> what, what you were feeling, you wouldn't be able to name it, you wouldn't be able to place it. So the drive has to have an object. So whether in the unconscious or in the conscious mind, a drive can only be represented by an idea. So if you talk about unconscious instinctual impulses, you're already necessarily talking about unconscious ideas. Um, so there's a funny bit where, where he says that if you talk about a repressed impulse of the drive, um, and then this is a quote from Freud, he says, then the looseness of phraseology is a harmless one. Um, but maybe it isn't so harmless because it's a subject around which there seems to be lots of room for misunderstanding. And in that essay, he's supposedly trying to clear those misunderstandings up. <laughs> so I don't know why he says it doesn't matter, but yeah. Um, but, so this idea that the drives are just waiting there like racehorses ready to go might not be, or doesn't seem to be exactly how he wants us to see it. He's trying to tell us that the drive has to be linked with an idea in order to be recognised at all. So that's very different from a ball of primal energy like you might imagine um, if you read Jung, for example. Um, anyhow, he goes on from there to talk about unconscious emotions. So say, people being in love with other people and not wanting to admit it, or hating other people or being envious or, you know, whatever it is. So, so how does that all work? He says the drives are um, always pushing for satisfaction. So there's a push towards an object that promises to satisfy the drive. And once you have the drive plus the object, that's the same as saying you have an idea. So according to these systems that allow or disallow ideas... There's no such thing as an unacceptable drive. The problem is when the drive attaches to the wrong object. So if you find yourself sexually attracted towards someone who your ego deems totally inappropriate, that's when you've got a problem. It's not, you know, sexuality in itself. Um, so, so once the drive attaches to a, a, a naughty object, you might rather not know about it because you might consciously find the idea totally repellent. It's a, you know, anathema to your ego. So your psyche has to go to work to make the idea as harmless as it possibly can. So if the idea is pushing to get from the unconscious to the preconscious, and it's being kind of repressed or held back, then there are a couple of options. So one is that the drive can attach itself to a new object, and it has to be an object which shares enough features with the old object to make for a satisfactory substitute. So, you know, if it's been your dad that you didn't want to know, then, well, if you can find a boss or a teacher or some guy with the same initials or whatever it is, then, then that'll do. That's good. Um, so, so the feeling itself isn't repressed, but the idea associated with it is. Um, or, if, if that's not going to work for you, the affect or the feeling might take on a different quality of a similar intensity. So typically, that would be anxiety. So instead of feeling love or excitement, you just feel horribly anxious around the object. And then a third strategy would just be to squash the feeling out of existence by totally denying it in any way, shape, or form. So, so the unconscious has these options for dealing with repression. It can displace the affect onto a substitute, you know, the boss or whatever, or it can alter the nature of the feeling. 
But um, there's always the possibility that the pre-conscious is going to see it coming and just try to, you know, negate, negate the whole thing entirely. But um, very often that, that's not such a good strategy because it just won't go away. So, so what you see, I think, most of the time is a combination of all three. You might attempt to find a new object. Maybe the new object doesn't replace the old one altogether. Actually, you know, the boss is quite a rubbish guy and... Um, because um, as, as well as covering the thing, the, the replacement also reminds us of the old thing, in which case it makes us incredibly anxious. So instead of being happy to fancy the boss, the boss becomes the new anxiety object, because it still isn't safe to feel the original feelings. So, um, so then there might be attempts to explain and avoid the anxiety. So, so it's not just one solution or strategy, but kind of desperate cobbling together of, of all three. Um, so what you see in the formation of symptoms, of psychoanalytic symptoms, like phobias or anxiety disorder, might be that consciousness looks for a new object to attach the affect to. Um, and this, this is something slightly different, but it's a really amazing experiment by Bernheim, I think, so one of these kind of pre-Freudian people, that um, to do with furniture, it's brilliant, so he would put, the, the person would be in a room, and it, the room would be pretty empty, and he would say to them, um, he hypnotise them, and then say that actually this room is really full of furniture, there's a sofa there, there's a chair there, there's a big sideboard there, there's a lot of stuff in this empty but, um, so then he snaps them out of a chance, um, and there's a knock at the door. And so the person goes to the door, walking around, this, you know, doing, taking this very strange route. And then, then Bernheim says, why did you walk that funny way? And they know that there's no furniture in the room, but they've been told to behave as though there is. So they make up some completely amazing explanation of they went here and then they had a pain in their legs and they thought they'd go over there. <laughs> Try and put these two impossible ideas together and then sort of naturalise it to a funny explanation. So there's something about symptoms that, that is very much like that. Um, so in a case where, where a feeling's been transformed into anxiety, you see exactly the same kind of trick. Consciousness needs to find a reason why you feel anxious and is going to look around for whatever it thinks will do. So to give a real example, which I'm going to give some examples, they're not cases from my patients, they're my friends. But, um, so this is a woman who's, who's recently changed her life in a particular way. She's got herself out of one situation where she seemed to be keeping something going in order to avoid something else. But having got rid of the first thing, there's the fact of suddenly being confronted by the thing that she was trying to avoid by keeping that initial stuff going. So, um, you know, she's got it out of the way, this other thing comes up, and she feels this terrible sense of free-floating anxiety and really doesn't know what to do with herself. Then in the middle of the night, she hears a bang on one of her windows and becomes absolutely terrified and calls her, her family home, and her dad comes to rescue her. Um, and then she finds herself living in her parents' house, too terrified to go home. So the kind of inexplicable flood of anxiety gets converted into a fear of intruders, and that seems to make it much easier for her to live with. Plus, it gets her back into her parents' house with all the satisfactions and problems <laughs> that come with that. So it's a really brilliant sort of elegantly dreadful solution that seems to let the unconscious kind of have its way at the same, same time as keeping consciousness happy. So it's this really brilliant um, compromise formation. Um, does it seem really technical or does it make sense? I don't know. I don't know. It's like Freud's the weirdest person to read because <laughs> you, you read it and it seems very nice. I mean, he expresses it very himself very well and it seems very straightforward and then you try to say what he says and you just don't even know where to start <laughs> but um, so yeah I hope it makes sense um, so then in section 4 of that essay it's called Topography and Dynamics of Repression um, and he talks exa about exactly that sort of thing how a symptom can be formed out of a compromise or stalemate between the three systems of the mind and um, there he takes the workings of phobia apart 
And in that, you know, I don't know if you know the Little Hans case, this is, you know, it's like the case of Little Hans, but only the dynamics. So there's, there's no sort of all this, um, you know, juicy stuff in Hans's life, the horses and penises and his mum on the loo and all, all these kind of interesting things um, that are so seductive when you're reading it are all gone from this account in Freud's essay. So it's like he's telling the story of Little Hans, but without Little Hans in it. It's just the, the sort of logic. Um, so here he says, a phobia begins with an unacceptable idea or, or cathexis. So cathexis meaning kind of investment in, in something, in an object. Um, and that isn't allowed to reach consciousness. So, so this investment needs to attach itself to a new idea. And then the new idea becomes a cause of anxiety due to its intimate connection with the repressed idea. So then this anxiety has to be prevented or subdued, um, or somehow kept out of consciousness. But the, the effect of that is that things further and further removed from the substituted idea trigger kind of mini warnings, like a little, that's, you know, um, as if to keep the person away from the central idea, like move towards it, you get a bit close, so oh, don't, don't go there. So the ego acts like the threat comes from the outside rather than the inside. And in a way, that's, that's why the mechanisms prove pretty useless. They don't save you from the thing you're trying to avoid, but instead start to serve as a constant reminder of it. So, so to give a quick example, which is kind of superficially similar to the other one, um, but it's much more worked over in analysis, there's a, a woman, another woman with a fear of intruders, and as Freud described, there was a kind of central fear, um, and in her case it was that a man would break into her house and attack her in her sleep. But there didn't need to be any kind of real sign that this might be happening to set the anxiety off, so that she didn't need to hear a bang at the window or anything. Just as soon as it got dark, absolutely everything in her flat would trigger the fear. So if she looked at the curtain, then it seemed, well, the curtain might be hiding something behind it. If she looked at a little lamp, then the way the lamp cast light into the room would suggest a scene from a horror movie. Kitchen, she wouldn't even go near the kitchen because obviously all kitchens are full of deadly weapons. Um, bathroom was like the bathroom and psycho, definitely going to get murdered there. So, and at the time, it would all seem completely real, but then she'd wake up the next day and just find it totally amazing that she'd been kind of so afraid of her own curtains or, or of her bedside table. It just seemed kind of unimaginable. So, it gradually transpired in analysis that she felt like she didn't get enough of her dad's attention and that she desperately craved it. She competed with her mother and, and believed that the father wasn't satisfied by the mother, although apparently they, they weren't at all kind of secretive about their sex life and would be noisy and leave the door open, etc. Um, there were lots of signs that the father was very interested in women and images of women and, and in kind of sex in general. So there's a fairly classical Oedipal scenario where the daughter might have all sorts of difficult thoughts and feelings around her father and sex, about which she feels very guilty and ashamed. So then when she's in her early 20s, that becomes a fear of a man coming into her bedroom at night and attacking her. So the sexual excitement become anxiety, and the father's become a stranger. Um, and she also she tries very hard not to think about it at all. So if the manifest fear is of her curtains when she's alone at night, then, then what she thinks all she has to do is go and stay at a friend's house and then she won't have to deal with the curtains or with being alone, so she won't be afraid. So it seems it, it's much easier to, to run away from your flat than it is to run away from your unfortunate sexual fantasy. But as Freud puts it, this, this new fear, the, the fear of the flat, proves obdurate and exaggerated because it, it just it won't be budged in the face of rationalization. So um, and that's how you can see that it's derived from the unconscious, which makes a bit of a mockery. I know it's really cheap for psychoanalysts to throw hot shots at CBT people, I know CBT people can do a lot of good. But <laughs> with um, treatments like CBT, you know, they act like um, symptoms like that can be rationalized out of existence. So perhaps in a case like that, the woman would be kind of cajoled into accepting 
that there's nothing scary at all about her light bulb, but really it's quite silly to be scared of a light bulb. And also, if you look at the crime statistics in her area, break-ins are very rare. But but talking to her about all that is not going to help her with her repressed wishes or her, her drives and the object that the drives are attached to. So that's the, you know the danger of these so-called cures, which can be impressive in the short term, because if you've got some person saying, you know, do this, it'll be really good for you, then for a week maybe it will. But um, there's an incredible frequency of relapse, and I think, yeah, that's what we see a lot in our consultants. Also, in a case like this, you, you can see the paradoxical nature of the symptom. So you want to run away from the idea at the same time as you actually might want to enjoy it or enjoy something about it. So when the affect is spread all over everything, then you, you get to feel it all the time, every night, um, and to be reminded of it and really make it central to your life, even to the point where all your friends know that you have to come and stay with them because <laughs> you're afraid of stuff. So at the same time as you don't know anything about your repressed wish, it comes to rule over really huge chunks of your existence. So if the drives are always pushing for discharge, then unconscious ideas linked to drives will always be fighting for some kind of recognition through symptoms or sticks or dreams. Maybe talk for ten more minutes about this stuff and then stop and ask questions. I don't know if I'll make it to that kind of ten minutes. You know, he's just a guy. Um, so you can see in, in that case, say, there's a certain level of mental gymnastics. In order to allow the impulse a degree of satisfaction while placating the ego. Um, when Freud talks about the special characteristics of the unconscious, he says that there's no negation, no doubt, no varying degrees of certainty, and also no time. So all those realistic tendencies are introduced by the system pre-conscious. So in the unconscious, there's just an impulse and an idea, and then that has to be knocked into some sort of civilised shape by the other psychic agencies. So also in section six, even further along in the essay, he talks about communication between the systems and says there's lots. Um, it goes on all the time. The unconscious constantly influences the, the pre-conscious, which impacts on consciousness. So because of its capacity to transform and displace ideas and feelings, unconscious derivatives are going to constantly be making their way into the pre-conscious and conscious systems. So the unconscious is very active, every bit as much so as the other systems. And Freud also refers, near the end of the essay, to unconscious impulses being highly organised. And that's an idea that then becomes especially important for Lacan. So for Freud, the unconscious isn't a big mess, it's a system, um, and the reason that the things in it have to be kept away from consciousness is because they're deemed too unsettling to the person's good image of themselves. So it's not because they're too kind of formless or too qualitatively different from conscious ideas for the two systems to understand each other. They understand each other perfectly well, which is why they're able to keep reaching mutually agreeable compromises. And there may even be times where they don't have to compromise very much. So a repressed wish can suddenly become perfectly well allowed if it finds a way to align itself with something egocentric, something that, that suits your idea of yourself, which obviously is something, something that we see in, um, very well, terrifyingly in the civil wars, for instance. But, um, or even if you're kind of repressed anger at a sibling, suddenly finds a cause which you think justifies it and you can really go to town, take out all your hatred and it's brilliant. Um, so maybe a very good and famous example of this phenomenon is the story of Lot and his daughters from Genesis. But, um, so in that story, the, the family escapes from Sodom and the wife's unfortunately looked back turned into a bit of salt. So a lot of the daughters go and hide in this cave. Um, and the daughters believe that the whole rest of the world's been destroyed. So in order to save humanity, they have to seduce their father and have babies with him, which they do by getting him drunk. Um, so this idea, which back in Sodom would have been totally not on, not okay, you know, 
abandoning and that, the very thing that they were kind of running away from, suddenly becomes this very noble act, and they could perform it knowing that they're doing the right thing. Um, so, last thing about Freud's paper, um, there's, it finishes with a section on schizophrenia. Um, and displacements due to repression. And he says that you see something really weird happening in schizophrenia. And you know that the Freudian idea of schizophrenia is very different to the you know, contemporary medical idea, but there's a lot in it that's really amazing. Um, so Freud gives two examples. One is a patient appears who can't stop squeezing the blackheads on his nose, um, and he fidgets with his skin and seems to get satisfaction from these eruptions of pus. So there seems to be something masturbatory about this activity. And then he gets very upset by the idea that he's ruined his skin by scarring it. You know, that after squeezing the blackhead, he's always left with a hole. So he sees these holes in his nose as vaginas. So his, um, you know, masturbatory activity has left him castrated with a hole instead of a penis. And Freud says that a neurotic person would be very unlikely to use a tiny hole in the skin as the symbol for vagina. He says it just it's not similar enough, it, it won't do. Plus the fact that there are a lot of them close together. So he says one neurotic might see kind of any old um, medium-sized cavity as an orifice, they'd be very unlikely to use a multitude of tiny holes in the same way. So it's simply the fact that both things can be described using the word hole or whatever that is in German, that makes them interchangeable for the, for the um, schizophrenic patient, for the psychotic patient. So likewise for another patient of his, who, who sees the little gaps in the knitting of his socks as vaginas, and is really upset um, by the idea of, of, of his wanting to unravel his socks. <laughs> so again, it's the word whole that's important in making the connection. So, so Freud deduces from that that in schizophrenia, one very important... Um, symptom or phenomenon is that words have predominance over things. And in Freudian theory, schizophrenia um, is classified as a narcissistic disorder um, where object cathexes are given up and the ego is hyper-cathected or is sort of hyper-investment in your own being and it's that that leads to the terrifying loss of reality. So the person suffering becomes whatever it is, the one who has to save the world or is the only human left and everyone else is a zombie, or that, you know, government aliens are watching them, whatever it is. But he says that while the object cathexes are given up, words cathexes aren't. So words might be invested with an overload of excitement, while appearing to be quite kind of freestanding and cut loose from the things they supposedly represent. And that's something you hear a lot from, you know, contemporary psychotic people, that, that words might persecute them in a very particular way. So that leads Freud to say that word presentations and thing presentations are not the same, but can be bound together in, in a kind of secondary operation. And that's where he concludes something about the difference between a conscious and an unconscious presentation. So the unconscious contains what he calls the first and true object cathexes, which exist in the unconscious as thing presentations. So the first kind of vague excitements that you experience are all registered there, then the system pre-conscious comes about as things are linked with words. So he talks about thing presentations being hyper-cathected through being linked with word presentations. So that acquisition of language is something incredibly exciting, and that's why you know babies would, would be bothered to learn to do it. And through it, you can organise relations with people in the world, manage absences, and, and have effects on, on people and things. You can have control. And you also learn that certain things have to be given up, and you know, in that way, you generally become socialised and realistic and neurotic. Um, so becoming socialised necessarily involves repression. You have to limit your unacceptable impulses, which is a message you're just constantly receiving as you grow up. But kind of, if if you're lucky, <laughs> if that doesn't happen, that that might be very hard for you further down the line. So the pre-conscious system is linked with the development of language and with prohibition. So the key difference for Freud at that stage between an unconscious presentation and a pre-conscious one is to do with whether or not the cathexis is presentable in words. 
So he says that what repression denies to the object cathexis is just the translation into words. You, you can't say it. And, and most particularly in words that remain attached to the object, he says. So, so repression just makes an idea unsayable. And even if you were given the words by somebody else, for instance, someone who knew kind of all about psychoanalysis and thought they knew what your unconscious was up to and interpreted it back to you, you're in love with your mom, whatever they think. Then the words still wouldn't be attached to the object. They'd be cut loose from it, even if they were the right and true words. Which is why um, you would never, I, I think, hope, make a big interpretation at the beginning of any treatment. Because it really doesn't matter how kind of correct it is, you won't be helping the person in any way whatsoever. In fact, you'll probably make them run away from you at speed. Um, yeah, I stop there, which is pre-Lacan, but you can tell in all of that that it's all about language. Freud already thought it was all about language, so that's what Lacan says to you. And so, so I think that that sort of explains where Lacan's getting it from, because there are all these people like Andre Green who say, Lacan's wrong because it's, you know, the unconscious is pre-linguistic, etc. But that's not exactly what Freud said. Yes. Yeah. Yes, the absolutely. Both these approaches in mind when he, the importance of the language, the importance 
the body and the importance of the relations yeah. between people when he when he kind of invented the unconscious. Yes, yeah, but I suppose the idea of it being something structured or is the thing I was trying to get at not to deny that there is a body, but by the time it sort of enters in thought enters into this system it gets structured and that's something to take seriously, not to kind of I don't know, because because of the possibility of kind of woolly wildness, but then what, what do you do with it? <laughs> you know, what does that mean for people that yeah. Hi, um I was just at the end when you were talking about it's pretty mm-hmm. or or for the forty yeah. um take on it. Mm. And I just finished reading this Bruce Pink book that just came out. And he says something that really I couldn't get my head around, so I'm hoping you might help me with it. No, but I think it's yeah. quite I think it's quite a common I, I think it's an accepted thought in, right. in sort of Lacanian psychoanalysis for mm-hmm. um, that the psychotics don't make Freudian slips. Ah, uh, yeah. I know where that comes from, I think, according to this logic. But it's to do with repression, repression and transformation and the mechanisms of defense. And so I think that the Lacanian idea, I'm not backing this completely, but I think it's interesting to think about is that neurotics um, use repression, whereas psychotics use foreclosure. And foreclosure is, a, if it's a stronger defense, then the thing appears from the outside. And because, oh, sorry, that no, means... but it, also just mm, because you, I mean, in a way, I think you kind of delivered this, the answer yeah. in, in, in this idea that, that their, their relationship with language is really different. Yeah, yeah. So you wouldn't slip in the same way. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because you're so invested. Yes, yeah. And there's not this need for transformation, like the pre-conscious thing that makes, you, you know, that makes it a mess, that makes it confusing, etc. isn't the same. And so, yeah, it just doesn't, yeah, different mechanisms. <laughs> yeah. I just want to ask you about the last question. It was fascinating about neurotics, repression, and psychotics. Mm. Full closure. I want to know how, in what way what you mean by the word foreclosure because I have no idea I have come yeah, no, yeah, could yeah. you can you just unpack that I hope so I hope so but it's to do I mean it's in a way it's a more severe um, mechanism a more severe kind of method of, of holding ideas back and the Lacanian idea is to do in a way with the kind of neurotic bargain which would be made around the time of the Oedipus complex mm. which is like oh there is a law the law is going to save me actually the law is shit and it's, you know, policed by an idiot, but it kind of makes life better, it saves me from being swallowed up, so I'll accept it, even though it's bollocks. And, and so that would be perfect, neurotic, socialising, lovely thing. <laughs> and so, so I suppose the Lacanian thing is that that does not function for psychotic people, it just doesn't work, they don't buy it. And so to stop being swallowed up, to stop falling apart, to stop disintegrating, you have to have a much stronger thing in place than this kind of woolly, oh, okay, I'll buy it, but I didn't buy it. Because, and, and so what could it be? What would you believe in? And if it's, a, you know, that there's a lord who watches everyone, if it's that there's, a, you know, aliens organising stuff that make things function a certain way, whatever it is. So you think that's more psychotic, kind of? Because psychotics, yeah. to me, seem to have a lot of vitality yeah, sometimes. Yeah, They're often very charismatic. Yes, completely brilliant. But, yeah, because I used to always wonder why... Um, if, if all this stuff is true, and you know, I think it's really good to question it, but why do people like films like Terminator, for instance? I mean, all the big popular films are all kind of psychotic scenarios, aren't they? <laughs> but that, that's the kind of big Hollywood stuff mm. that, you know, that, that aliens are coming, that you're being watched, that da 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 Matrix, whatever it is. Why does everyone like that if supposedly only a percentage of people are psychotic? But I suppose the way of thinking about that, if you accept that distinction and those reasons for that distinction, would be, in a way, because in cases of psychosis, it's not transformed by repression. It doesn't have to appear as something else. And so this thing of things coming back from the outside in this very odd way, in this very forceful way, in this very kind of... I don't know, precise, grand way. It was like a living fantasy. Yes, kind of and it's more exciting. Out. Yeah, I, I, I understand. understand. <laughs> yeah. You maybe yeah. understand a lot of people I've known. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
um, your examples from anxiety with the woman who was constantly afraid of intruders yeah. are so interesting to me. And I would like to know whether there is some sort of logic behind them that drives the mind of the anxious person. Is there a pattern that, I mean, a common cause or... Well, I don't know. I mean, in that case, I suppose I was trying to choose one. It's, it's a bit too schematic. Like, I hope I'm not going to find that person's story. But the idea that, say, that there's just because of the dad being a bit leery with the mom and all that kind of, just growing up around this dad that you know a bit too much about his body and his life. And you just don't, maybe don't want to know. But actually, you do want to know because sex is very interesting. It's going to involve you at some point, you hope, probably. And so what do you do about that kind of thing? And so when you start to think about sex in your family, as you grow up, then your dad's got a lot to do with it, and that becomes more and more disgusting to you, probably, as you go into adolescence, as you grow up, as you have your first sexual experiences, etc., 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 it's quite more and more difficult to bear the fact that that connection exists for you. So then, well, what do you do? And so in this case, this thing gets sort of twisted around, so the idea of a sort of you know, scary man coming into your bedroom might be a fantasy that you had as a child, a childhood fantasy that man would come to your bedroom and do something to you, you know, whatever it would be, but, and that has to go, that has to go, because that's awful, but if it goes, well, what's it going to turn into instead, and so it turns into weirder and weirder and weirder things, away from the kind of epicenter of that horror, and onto bits of furniture, onto bits of everything, but, you know, the more it does that, the more it's present for the person, so, yeah, that's, it seems to be like that. it will be happy to use a lamp or it will be happy to use the curtains or it will be happy to use something as a kind of signifier for the original thing, this, this repressed fantasy which is too horrible. All these other objects will be like words. So, so in a way, within, you know, according to structuralist ideas about language, a word could be anything. You know, there's no reason why this word means this and that word means that. And so, so the idea of the unconscious is structured like a language has something to do with that, where anything could stand so for anything. Like yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Support for the for the idea of the unconscious coming from the brain sciences. Yeah, but more and more this well neuropsychoanalysis is a thing that is ter- I feel really bad to ask you questions about this because you know psychoanalysis is so factualized and, and um, you can get really stupid about um, who thinks what. <laughs> but neuropsychoanalysis is incredibly fascinating and it, there are lots of people totally hard at work on all that stuff to see how these ideas might relate to functions in the brain and, so, and exactly to do with the development of the brain. The thing that people always start to the, the lizard mind, this kind of you know, core of the brain and whether there's a relation between that and the unconscious because that's where the first kind of impressions are laid down that would then kind of emanate outwards into a more sophisticated mental functioning. Yeah, so it's, it's totally the thing you've been researched at the moment, but it's not the thing I know most about. I wanted to ask a question about um, I mean, how you or how Freud, how diverse symptoms might be. Um, in the example you gave um, of the woman having repressed desires about her father, it seems to be quite kind of a common yeah. symptom. Yeah. So, you know, could they, how many possible symptoms are there? <laughs> <laughs> Lots. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I don't know, it's really, I mean, it's so funny because because the theory of psychoanalysis, I suppose, is not to be too diagnostic. Like in the DSM or the psychiatric things, it's you've got this disorder, that disorder, da 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 da, and we know how to treat you. But, um, and so in psychoanalysis, you don't have that. You sort of have the idea, well, anyone who comes to you is odd, and you have to be very careful about the fact that they're particular and not think you know something already. So if you interpret a dream, you'd never say, 
oh, you know, you get trains of cars and the tunnels, which I know you'd never assume it was that for that person because of this linguistic messiness. A train might stand in for all sorts of things for that person, and it would be your job to, to find out something about that with them. But it's funny that, I mean, it's not funny at all, but if you, if you work over a long time or in clinics or whatever, you might have a block of a morning where everyone you see is a kind of, you know, woman in their 40s who self-harms and is having a horrible divorce or something like, you know, but each person will be incredibly different in the way they handle it or deal with it. Or, but so, so there are lots of intersections, I suppose, between people, but then you can never think that you're a specialist because you've worked with a self-harming 40-year-old woman, so you know what their thing is, because <laughs> you definitely don't, you don't. Yeah, so it's, yeah, it's a weird thing. But also, when somebody turns out with a completely new symptom, it's really nice. It's really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> not if they're suffering too much. But, and also, there, there are symptoms that you might not hear. I mean, you know, I worked for 10 years and nobody had ever come to me talking about gender dysphoria. And in the last year, that's like everyone I see. <laughs> so, what is sort of what happened there? You know, it's, you know, it's very media sort of thing. Yeah. Do you think people are catching it? Catching it? <laughs> <laughs> Completely Jennifer, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I caught a rash the other day. It's quite sad. Not, not by any physical contact. I was just walking along. And in front of me... Mike. So, oh, do you want to Yeah. Yeah, I was just walking along by, by the river. And then in, in front of me was a, was a man, was a man, um, in front of me was a man who, who was walking with his wife and, and she was pushing the push chair and they were kind of slightly separated as if they didn't really want to be particularly together. And then, and he was quite a big guy, had his shirt off, it was a hot day the other day, and shorts. And he had the most awful rash all down his back and down his legs. And it was like really, really kind of disturbing. And they were going quite slowly and we sort of walked by trying to avoid any possible contact. And then I walked on a few steps and started feeling the rash. <laughs> and I opened my shirt and there was a physical rash. So I thought, this is just his thing. <laughs> I gave myself a good, good talking show, and then in a couple of minutes it disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like catching, yeah. you know, talking about the body. You know, the body speaks. That's the whole thing. Yeah, you know, the yeah, body is yeah. a foundation. Yeah. For, but the you know, body lies as much and, as Oh, it lies to me. It's all about the matter I didn't. Because if you if you're training to be an analyst, 
then you have to be in analysis and you have to be reading all the time and all the stuff. <laughs> but, um, that that can really push your analysis along, you know. But I think because I, I did it for four years before I started the training, and it was only really when I started the training, it's like, oh god, I am allowed to think that horrible thing because that's in the book. Probably only when I started studying that I started to say stuff really. So yeah, it can go either way. <laughs> about your views and Freud's views about the problems that can, that can arise from being able to put an idea into language that is not necessarily a faulty transmission of the idea into language that the, the language didn't give an accurate representation of the idea but more broadly about whether language can give an adequate representation of an idea in the first place Oh yeah, that, that's so unanswerable, isn't it? Because yeah. I mean, language is so problematic, it's so approximate. And, and the whole Lacanian thing is that language is a trauma, that, that when you go into that, it's brilliant because it helps you re-want it. And as Freud said, you know, it's kind of, um, it's libidinally invested, it's exciting because it helps you to do stuff and it's kind of brilliant. Like there are lots of things to tempt you into it. But actually, when you get there, it's bloody awful because it doesn't do everything you want it to do. You can't say stuff. You can't, you know, there's stuff that gets left out. Everything has to be kind of organised into language, which is a system. And, and you know, there's something about being which doesn't fit at sort of, yeah, in relation to what you were saying, that, that language can't cover the whole thing, but it's the one you've got to work with, so you have to bear it short for. And, you know, people might be more or less traumatised by that might naturalise it more or less or you know. I mean it's quite interesting that Freud talks about not only the treasure in nonsense but in the joke book that jokes are a kind of rebellion mm. against you know the most sophisticated jokes are are um, sort of tendentious sceptical jokes he calls them and they're jokes which question the categories of reality mm. so they're the ones where we can kind of Free ourselves, um, you know, from the prison house of language, I suppose. Mm. So, so there is that kind of rebellion against it. Well, yeah. Would you say also that language, that language can develop another nice person, probably a lot nicer than me. <laughs> because yeah, I think that's a really good thing that language would be able to do, that it's a wish for, from language, etc. But I suppose it can do all sorts of other things as well, and there's a question of what you try to, to do with it, and, 
and how well you, your attempts work and things. And so, that, you know, some people might think it's a really good thing to use to, to get power over other people or to trick other people or to, you know, do all the different things you can, can do with another. So, so to find common ground or to empathize or whatever is an excellent thing to try to do with language. But, um, it's just one of the things that you can have a go at. But I suppose the, the thing that's so interesting in relation to that and, and to what you were saying is how this this thing of um, sameness or copying and how it might be done. And it, uh, and there's all the stuff in relation to kind of neuroscience, the mirror neuron thing that shows that, that bodies really do, you know, oh, and you see it all the time actually in the clinic that um, somebody, you, you just go to itch your ear and the person goes to itch the same ear. And it's just, oh, it happens a lot. So that's that kind of communication. It seems evidently is going on between people all the time, and that must be that's something different to, to language. But um, all, all that stuff is kind of interlocking and being handled and dealt with, however it can be dealt with. It's quite interesting again in the joke book, where Freud is basically looking at a communication system between two people, say, and what's going on in the creation of the joke is mirrored, it's quite complex process, is then mirrored in the reception of the joke. But of course there's also, you wrote a chapter called Jokes as a Social Process, where often of course you're relating to one person in order to attack another person who's the butt of the joke, when often a lot of jokes have an aggressive intent. So it's kind of, you know, it's, it's both things can be happening at once, a kind of empathy and sympathy and contact and relationship and yes. scapegoating, attacking and yeah. stuff, stuff, stuff.